So let us then listen to the word of God and listen to the herald that God has sent us for this time, for this day, for you today. Let us then listen to the message this morning. Chris. Amen, folks. How are you all this morning? For those of you who are suddenly anxious that I might go on for 45 minutes, I'm not sure that I will. This is the United States, and most Presbyterians like 20 to 25 minutes, so I'll try to keep it in that range. Is that all right? It's, it's, a, it's a deal. Okay. I, I, I promise that your lunch won't burn. <laughs> Friends, I want you to hear the word of God from the scripture reading today coming out of Luke chapter 7. And it is my custom to invite you, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's word. That is really to kind of draw attention and give honor to the reading of the word. And again, that is if you are able and so care to. And Lord, we ask that you would take the word for today and make it the word for today. Now, Lord, the thoughts that I've prepared in my mind, the reactions to the scripture, I pray that, Lord, you would empower it to be the word for today. That speaks to our hearts that we open before you. That speaks to our minds that we open before you. And most of all, allow us to gaze into your word today and be changed. That we can leave here different than we came. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer, or the centurion, heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people. And he even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. Just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I am not worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, come, and they come. And if I turn to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. This is the reading of God's word for today. You may be seated. When I look at this story, I see a story of great faith. Someone who thinks himself not worthy of being in the presence of Jesus is one that actually has great faith. Now, when we look around at our lives, when we think of people who had great faith, we think of people who changed history. For example, this summer I read the, autobi- I read the biography of William Wilberforce, who came to know Christ and lobbied for 20 years in Parliament to abolish the slave trade in Parliament in England. That was a 20-year battle, and as we look at his history and his argument, we would say that is a man of great faith to change culture. Or sometimes we look at believers who walk through extraordinary suffering, but yet maintain their faith 
in God, maintain their faith in Christ Jesus. We look to them as heroes of our faith. Or maybe we think of the believers in Christ who step out to do the impossible and they accomplish the impossible. Missionaries like Hudson Taylor, for example. I've been a missionary. I've lived in Panama for seven years. I took my family to Panama on a call of God. And we went to Costa Rica first in 1997. And while I was there, the Lord gave me a spiritual heart transplant for the region. And for the next 10 years, we made our mission trips there. We gave all of our mission dollars in that general area. That's even where we went on vacation, was into countries like Nicaragua and Costa Rica. All of our mission involvement would be in trips to Venezuela and into Panama. After that visit in Costa Rica, I actually said to my wife, wouldn't it be funny if we just sold everything we had and moved to Latin America? (laughs) She just laughed at me like I had fallen off the rocker. But 10 years later, she said to me, Chris, it's time. So we sold everything that we had. My wife left her six-figure job. I resigned my pastorate. And we moved to Panama. You see, we had found a ministry in Panama that said to us, Chris, why don't you come and be part of our teaching team? Because we need an evangelist on our team. I said, great, with that invitation, let's go. We packed all of our stuff up in a 20-foot container, threw it on a boat, bought an apartment in Panama City, and we bought our one-way tickets. And as we were sitting on the floor three days in the country, our stuff had not even arrived. We were eating ramen noodles off of cardboard boxes on the floor. I get an email from the organization that invited me saying, we have closed our doors. We are not going to do anything anymore. That was a giant step of faith. That seemed at the moment to be a colossal failure. But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had called us to minister in the country of Panama and we built the ministry from scratch. Maybe part of the entrepreneurial gifting that the Lord has given me to create something out of nothing But for seven years, we ministered and labored there. And every summer, I would come back to the United States with my family, and we would itinerate and raise money for our mission. And one of the phrases that I heard on a regular basis was, I couldn't do that. I couldn't leave my job. I couldn't leave my family. I couldn't do that. Chris, you are a person of great faith. Some people might say it was even reckless. But it was a challenge for us. It was an example of our living out a great faith. And now we come to this story in Luke chapter 7 of another person who had great faith. Now just prior to this story, Jesus had been spending an evening in prayer. He had called his disciples that next day. And then he came down the mountain to teach. And all of Luke chapter 6 is that teaching that, that, that Jesus had done. And that now brings us to the beginning of chapter 7. And Luke places this story here to not only show that Jesus teaches with authority, but there is authority in the spoken word of Jesus. And with the word, Jesus can heal. But the aspect of this story that gathers me today is the fact that the centurion had great faith. Now, in the Bible translation that we chose to read from today, it's just called a Roman official, but that Roman official was a centurion. Imagine, if you would, the cultural stereotypes that one conjures up for a Jewish reader in particular for hearing the word centurion. Centurion, he's a Gentile, not one of us. 
That centurion, he's a commanding officer of an occupying force. He's a foreigner. He's a slave owner. He is hated by our people. A centurion was one who was grown up to be hated. When I was in Bolivia a couple of weeks ago, I was, we were teaching pastors at a, at a conference, and I was at a house for dinner one night, and I began to hear of some of the history between Bolivia and Chile. At one point, apparently, Bolivia used to have ocean access, but Chile took it away. And now Bolivian schoolchildren are being raised to hate Chileans. Can you imagine just growing up and being told that those people are wrong, those people are evil, those people, those people, those people? This is what conjures up with the word centurion to the early Jewish readers. So this story challenges us to look past our cultural stereotypes about who is worthy to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. All can receive the grace of Jesus as we look at this account and actually compare it to Matthew's version in chapter 8 of Matthew, we see that there are three supposed contradictions, and if we want to be honest with the text, we have to deal with those. The first difference that we have to deal with is who is the servant boy in our text that we read today? It was just a highly valued slave. Matthew calls him a son. So which is it, a son or a slave? Luke uses the word for slave. Matthew uses the word for son. The centurion even calls him son. So who are we really dealing with? What is the family relationship that is here? The word choice for servant indicates a slave that had become from war, but one who had become very dear. One who had become very important. One who had become almost family almost adopted, almost part of the family, someone who is highly valued, not in terms of economic worth, but someone who is dearly beloved. This is a term of relational closeness. And some of you probably have relationships like that. Somebody who's not quite part of your family, but is part of your family. Someone who can speak into your life, someone that you care for, and someone that you would go to bat for if there is ever any problem. The second apparent contradiction that we have to deal with is who actually speaks to Jesus. In Matthew's version of the story, the centurion himself is speaking to Jesus. But in the version of Luke, Luke has the centurion speaking to Jesus through two different sets of intermediaries. So which one is it? Well, when you think about what we do in the English language, there are times where the boss would say, well, I got it done when really it was the assistant that did it, right? There are times where we say, I did it, but we know that it was the assistant who did it. I run two businesses, and so I do have a part-time assistant, and my part-time assistant does a lot of my stuff for me. But in terms of dealing with customers directly, I say, I will get it done. But really, it is my assistant who does it. There's a way that we function in our own language where we are said that to do what we actually do by somebody else, as when the boss says, I got it done, or when Obama said, but it was really a spokesperson who said it. So I think it's fair to say that in this case, we can say that the centurion approached Jesus, but he approached Jesus through these intermediaries. The third apparent contradiction that we have to wrestle with is, what was the illness? 
In Luke's version, it just simply says that the servant was sick and about to die. In Matthew's version, he was paralyzed and suffering terribly. Again, which is it? For me, it's not an either or. It can very easily be a both and. Anyone who has cared for a patient that has progressive paralysis to the point of death knows what this is like. For someone who is in hospice care, who was once mobile and within five months is no longer mobile, yeah, that's suffering and about to die. I watched my mom lose her motor skills as she wrestled with pancreatic cancer. She functioned with it for seven years, but then beginning in May of 2013, it went downhill from there. She fell, and that, uh, as, as she fell, she started walking with a cane, and then the cane suddenly became a walker, and then the walker became a wheelchair, and then eventually it became to the point where she couldn't get out of bed anymore. I saw something similar firsthand, someone who was, who was confined to bed almost to the point of death and suffering in her condition. What is clear, even as we look through these contradictions, what is really clear, or these supposed contradictions, we see a servant who is very dear to his master. This is a person who has become highly valued. And a takeaway point that we can walk away from this particular note is, uh, with is that be highly favored in your work or be diligent in your work no matter who you work for. And when you become highly favored, they will help you. And that is what happens here. The centurion sends two waves of people. The first one is a delegation of Jewish elders, which strikes me as somewhat odd, given that he was the Roman centurion, someone that they were taught to hate and taught to disobey, taught to ignore. So he sends this delegation of Jewish elders and he sends this delegation of friends. So why would he send, why would the centurion send a delegation of Jews? Well, he confesses to this a little bit later when he sends his friends, he says, I am not worthy to come and meet you. I am not worthy to have you in my house. As I got to thinking about this particular perspective, I have friends that don't know Jesus, and I hope you do too. I have friends that do not walk with the Lord. I have friends that are spiritually curious, and I have friends that are beginning to awaken to issues of faith. One of my friends in particular, when as he is now reading scripture with me, he has said several times, I don't feel worthy to pray. He says to me, Chris, why don't you pray for me? And I want to tell him, and I do tell him, that you too can boldly come before the throne of grace. But yet he keeps saying, I don't feel worthy. Now his family is going through a crisis and his brother has now asked my friend, why don't you pray for me? And my friend is now saying, Chris, why don't you pray for me and my brother? Because I don't feel worthy. I hope that you have friends who don't know Christ that are in that same place. Or, or maybe you're in that same place. You don't feel worthy of coming before the Lord. But if you are a follower of Jesus, here is the word of God. The Word of God says that we can confidently and boldly come before the throne of grace and make our petitions known. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been reconciled with God. We can come before the throne of grace. We have been made worthy. 
But at this point, the Roman centurion doesn't feel worthy. And so he sends the elders of the Jews. The Pharisees thought that actually the Roman occupiers were dogs. And so why did they even go? Well, the text gives us the answer that the centurion was known for loving the Jewish people. And he even funded their building campaign. As the text says, if anyone deserves your help, he loves the Jewish people. And he, begin, he built the synagogue for us. He was said to love the Jewish people and they went to bat for him. It's, in fact, it says they pleaded earnestly. I like the wording here. This is a case of intercession, really, where, where these Jewish elders go to bat for the centurion. They plead earnestly with Jesus that the circumstances and situations would change. They try to come up with reasons to justify. This man has donated to our building committee. This man has loved our people. If anyone is worthy, it is him. I remember a time when I was in Panama. I was introduced as evangelist Chris Walker. Now, being introduced as evangelist Chris Walker comes with its own connotations, which I did not know at the time. Evangelist Chris Walker means come and get your miracle. To come and have your crusade. Come because the Holy Spirit will work through the evangelist and you will be healed. Come and get your miracle. That's the preconception that I was walking into and I did not know this. I'm preaching at a church in a very humble part of Panama City, introduced as evangelist Chris Walker, and I get up and I preach the Word of God in Spanish as horrible as it was. The Spanish was, not the Word of God. <laughs> and when the service was over, I did not feel a particular anointing of the Holy Spirit to pray for anybody. I finished preaching with the Word of God, I gave the microphone to the pastor, and I sat down, ready to go home. Ha! Pastor was surprised. He was expecting a mighty miracle crusade, and I was not providing one. So pastor gets up, and he starts leading the people in song, and, and I'm sitting here ready to go home because I'm tired. But he's leading people in song, and, and he's calling for people to get saved, and he's calling for people to come forward and receive prayer for whatever they want. And there's this lady who's sitting against the wall right about in this area over here. She's quite elderly in her appearance, and they pick her up by the hand and they lead her forward and as she comes forward she's 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 limping on her on her right ankle and I'm by this time just kind of looking at the spectacle that's going on and the pastor comes up to me and says evangelist healer this was an awkward moment to say the least now, I do believe that God heals the sick. I do believe in the laying on of hands for people and the prayer of faith and the anointing of oil. I do believe in all of that stuff. But at that moment, I had very little faith. But because I was commanded to do so, really, I gather before this lady. I asked her if I could pray with her. And because the ankle was swollen, you see, the story was is that as she was walking to church that night, she tripped over a hole, and so her ankle was entirely inflamed. She had twisted it pretty bad. So I asked permission if I could lay my hands on her ankle and begin to pray for her. And so I did. And I began to plead earnestly. Lord, if there's anyone who is worthy of receiving a miracle of healing right now, it's this lady. I can assume that by the way she dresses that she doesn't have money. 
I can assume that she can't get to the socialized hospital. I assume that she cannot and, and has not transportation to get there, nor can she afford it, nor can she afford the doctor's visit. Oh, Lord, if there's anyone who is worthy, it is this woman. My prayers are pleading earnestly, just like the Pharisees. If anyone is worthy, Lord, it is this woman. It is this elderly woman. Nothing's happening as I'm waiting for the swelling to go down. The panic is now beginning to rise in my in my heart at this point. And my prayers begin to switch, Lord. If there's anyone who is worthy, it is this woman. Oh, God, bail me out of this. <laughs> and my prayers shift to the Lord, rescue me. If anyone is worthy of being rescued, do something, God. But nothing happened. Her ankle didn't go down and she limped back to her seat and the pastor never invited me back to his church. <laughs> now, there have been other times where I have prayed and I have seen mighty miracles happen. But for some reason, in the sovereignty of God, he chose not to heal that lady that day. But I remember what it was like to plead earnestly, much like the Pharisees were doing here. Their petition was that this man deserves it. They were trying to maybe bargain with Jesus. They thought he was a worthy Gentile, but the man himself did not think that he was worthy. So the censorian sends the second round of people. These are his friends. And when he hears the report that Jesus is coming, he doesn't stress out about preparing the house, but he sends some second friends to try to stop him. And here we see the expression of the centurion's faith. What little faith he had. It may not be theologically accurate. He didn't have a statement of faith that he believed in. He probably didn't even know that Jesus was going to die for his sin, but he simply says, say the word. In other words, he had enough faith to trust Jesus to deal with his situation. He even uses his own illustration from his own context. His faith was informed out of his own experience. Just say the word, Jesus, and I know that it will be done. And verse 9 says, and Jesus was amazed at him. Jesus was amazed. The only place in all four Gospels where Jesus is amazed at anybody Jesus was amazed at someone who was outside of the boundaries of God's grace, so to speak. Jesus was amazed at someone who was outside of the family of God. Jesus was amazed at the centurion. The only other place where Jesus was amazed is in a negative context, at the lack of the faith of people in his hometown. But here is a God-fearer. Here is a pagan. Here is someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. This pagan was not excluded from the grace of Christ, and Jesus chose to heal him. Jesus was amazed at his faith, not at his theological accuracy. This was big faith. To Jesus, big faith is a big deal. This is a big faith that is partnered with humility. He didn't feel worthy, but yet he expressed his faith in Jesus anyway. And that is what I want to call my friend to. I want to call my friend to place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But let's bring this home to us personally. We're not centurions. We live in the 21st century. How do we bring this home to us? And so the question that I raise is where do you need big faith? Where do you need big faith? And big faith is needed where our fears are greatest. Big faith is where our fears is needed, where our fears are greatest. 
Right now, as a missionary family, we live by faith. We live and trust that God will provide for our ministry. And over the last two months, I've had donors that have canceled on our ministry. I need big faith that God will provide. I'm working on a project to train pastors in Latin America. And that budget has $300,000 over three years. I need big faith that God will provide that $300,000. I need the big faith to know that God will use me when I go to Nicaragua next month or in December. I need big faith to see God pay my bills. What about you? Maybe you need big faith in the face of a business failure where chapter 11 has come to your business. Maybe you need big faith in the face of a foreclosure or even in a divorce. Maybe you need big faith to ask God to restore your future, restore your marriage, restore your family. Maybe you need the big faith to ask God to be with you as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as you fight against cancer, as you trust God for the big faith that He is present in all of your circumstances. Maybe you need the big faith to see your son or your daughter survive rehab Or maybe this morning you need the big faith because like the centurion, you simply feel that you are not worthy of the grace of God. Maybe you need the big faith to say, Jesus, save me anyway. Maybe you need the big faith to say, Jesus, I cast myself upon you, enter my life and bring me hope. Maybe that is the big faith that you need this morning. Where do you need your big faith? Let's close in prayer. Lord, each one of us faces challenges that overwhelm us as our life is upside down. For some of us, things are going okay. But for those of us where the circumstances are against us, where life is against us, where we feel like we're walking up a down escalator, going nowhere, Lord, grant us the big faith to trust in you to say the word for breakthrough to come. Give us the big faith to see your provision. Give us the big faith to know your hope. Give us the big faith to trust in the glorious and inexpressible joy that we are receiving as our faith is being tested. Lord Jesus, Grant us the big faith to cling to you when everything seems lost and hopeless. It's in Christ's name. Amen.